This week, communism is lapping at our heels in Australia. And no, I'm not being a right-wing nutjob conspiracy theory cooker. Don't need to be. It's all out in the open, and step one is the voice to parliament. If you're even thinking of voting yes, you need to watch this. And as Australia lurches left, Europe lurches right. It's Bastille Day in France, and we're going on a little whip around Europe to try to understand the continent's political shift and what's driving it and what Australia needs to learn from it. A lot happening in Holland, Germany and France. We will bring you up to date on it all. It's going to be a mind-expanding episode on the real issues of our times. G'day and welcome to episode 214 for the weekend starting Friday, July 14. This is The Other Side Australia and I'm Damien Curry. First of all, before we start the show, we want to thank everyone who's engaged with us on ADH TV, on Twitter and on YouTube. And while we do our best to respond back to comments, we may not get to all of you or we might get to you quite late down the line. We're a very small team here at the other side, but we do do our best to stay engaged as much as we possibly can, even if we uh, you know, agree with you or don't agree with you or you agree with us or don't agree with us. We welcome your polite engagement on all of the issues. So uh, thank you from the entire team. The Governor of the Reserve Bank of Australia, Philip Lowe, has been officially shown the exit door. Lowe has just announced some big reforms to how the bank would operate. Fewer meetings and more press conferences was his last ditch plan to hold on to the role, it seems. But who the governor is isn't going to make one dot of difference to interest rate policies. This is all just the front end. It's the, the show end of the game. The bank is supposed to be independent from the government, but that's a, an unrealistic view of how the world really works. It can never really be totally independent. And since the government is elected by us, it probably shouldn't be. But the general idea is to stop bad decisions being made for short-term political reasons rather than for what's best economically long-term for the country. Which is a bit of a pipe dream, really. Don't think that Philip Lowe caused interest rate rises. Our overspending governments and massive debt and net zero and woeful COVID management have all caused inflation worldwide and that's what leads to interest rate rises. No new reserve bank head is going to change that. If you can't afford your mortgage, if the interest rates hit nine or 10%, you might seriously want to consider selling and downsizing sooner rather than later. But I'm not qualified to give financial advice. I'm not allowed to give financial advice. So please speak to a financial planner about that before you do anything. But just be clear, the reserve bank governors don't really decide where interest rates go economic reality does. And economic reality says you can't spend like a raving lunatic on everything you want and not have to pay the piper one day. I watch a lot of videos to produce this show every week, but every so often you come across a person who so accurately articulates the nonsense going on in the world at the moment and who puts words to things so perfectly that it just makes you stop in your tracks. I had that experience this week with British author and social commentator Douglas Murray. Murray was appearing on Piers Morgan's show on Talk TV in the UK talking about reparations. That's the crazy idea that people alive today should pay money to other people alive today for what their ancestors did to each other hundreds of years ago. 
Don't laugh, it's happening in America and it'll be coming to Australia sometime very soon. I mean, if you're wondering why the voice to parliament needs a referendum to enshrine it in the constitution, some kind of reparations is most likely the reason. Anyway, here's how Piers Morgan posed the question to Douglas Murray. We've forgotten how to be genuinely proud of our great countries, both America and the United Kingdom, two of the greatest countries in the world. It's almost well, like every day now, somebody somewhere, normally on the left, the woke left, is queuing up to find a reason to hate the countries and their histories. Good point, well said. And it sent Douglas Murray into the next two minute monologue about the massive reset in our thinking that we need in the Anglosphere, about the whole idea of race politics. Well, it's it's a kind of grievance competition. Your guest earlier just tried to engage in it. I don't know what hurt she believes she's had from slavery. Uh, all of this was addressed two centuries ago. Everything has consequences. All history has consequences and ramifications. But, you know, if we were to play this fairly, we would at least look at all of the countries around the world that engaged in the slave trade who are simply not interested in any form of reparations that the, the Ottoman Empire all the Arab countries who not just traded far more slaves than across the Atlantic, but castrated all the men so that there wouldn't be any more African slaves in, uh, after them. They worked them to the bone. I see no interest across Africa in paying reparations for selling their brother and sister Africans into slavery or for working them to the bone to the present day. There is slavery across Africa today. In fact, there are more slaves in the world today than there were at the height of the transatlantic slave trade. So some of us are simply a bit bored of hearing people ripping at clothes wounds and then crying about their hurt or their presumed hurt because everybody could do this. A million Europeans were stolen by North Africans over the course of decades of the North African Barbary pirate slave trade. Where would you end if you did that? The answer is you couldn't end because nobody is alive who has actually suffered the hurt and nobody is alive who did the wrong. And I'd make one other point if I may. It's always the countries that people want to come to who are put through this struggle session. Britain, like America and France, are among the, are the most desired destinations for migrants worldwide and have been for centuries. Why is that? It's not because we're racist, it's because we're better. It's because we're good. It's because when we see racism, we actually call it out and recognize it as a sin. Try finding that across Africa. Try finding that across the Middle East or in China. Nobody would hear. So what we have is a situation where the more virtuous countries are presented as the worst countries. It's sick and most of us are tired of it. Hear, hear. As the kids would say, mic drop. Douglas Murray on Piers Morgan's talk TV show. In case the Yes campaign people start calling you a racist again for suggesting that the voice has anything to do with reparations, or for rightly saying that The Voice has very little to do with real Aboriginal issues and is really just a socialist voice to Parliament that will drive socialist policy and block liberal, pro-individual and pro-freedom policies, you may want to take a look at the people behind The Voice. Isn't it funny how the Conservative Aboriginal Elders are being criticised? Jacinta Price, Warren Mundine, oh they don't speak for us, no because they aren't socialists, or worse, open communists. Here's a recent ad from the No Lobby people at Advance Australia 
revealing who pro-voice activist Thomas Mayo really is and what he really stands for in his own words. The people who stand with me on this stage, I regard as giants. Thomas Mayo. Thomas, Thomas Mayo. Mayo. Written a handbook called the Voice to Parliament Handbook. All the detail you need. Thomas Mayo is a signatory to the Uluru Statement from the Heart, but was also entrusted with the physical document. Mayo is part of the referendum working group. He spent 18 months travelling around Australia to garner support for an Indigenous voice to Parliament. And I tell you what, we are sick of governments not listening to our voice. We are going to use the rule book of the nation to force them. There is nothing more powerful than building a First Nations voice, a black institution, a black political force to be reckoned with. Keep going until we change the system, until we tear down the institutions that harm our people. And also to pay respects to the elders of the Communist Party, who I think uh, without a doubt have played a very important role in our activism. You know, this is the first step. It's a vital step. Pay the rent, for example. You know, how, how do we do that in a way that is transparent and that it actually sees reparations and compensation to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. The power in the voice is that it creates the ability for First Nations to go forth with um, coherent um, positions on what legislation needs to be created, what legislation needs to be amended, and punish politicians that ignore our advice. This is a modest request. So let's get this clear, because it would seem that the Prime Minister of Australia has referred to a man who openly supports communists and wants reparations as a giant making a modest request. And that sounds crazy to me, so that can't be what we just saw. I mean, that's right-wing nutjob stuff. The Prime Minister of Australia would never openly stand beside and support someone like that, right? I must be seeing things. Surely there's no link between communism and the voice, you right-wing nutjob conspiracy theorist. Well, the Institute of Public Affairs held a voice forum in Melbourne last month and the director of the IPA's legal rights program, John Storey, gave the crowd a worthwhile education on something that our kids have been learning at school and uni called anti-racism. It's another gift to the world from America's woke academics. Our research on international comparisons came across a proposal to amend the Constitution of the United States. This proposal was put forward by Mr. Ibram X. Kendi. You may have heard of him. He wrote the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. What is anti-racism? Anti-racism is another word for racial equity. And racial equity is another word for communism. Equity requires equality of outcomes. All outcomes, um, whether measured by income, wealth, employment, university admissions, directorships of company boards, health statistics, incarceration rates, all social outcomes must be equal between racial groups. Mr. Kendi wrote in 2019, to fix the original sin of racism, Americans should pass an anti-racist amendment to the US Constitution. What was he proposing? The amendment would make unconstitutional racial inequity over a certain threshold, as well as racist ideas by public officials. So it would be unconstitutional to have different outcomes between racial groups above a threshold, and unconstitutional to hold racist ideas. Oh well, that should work. I mean, obviously you can remove all the evils of the world by force. 
That's always worked through history and never been misused or abused. It's simple. Ibram X. Kendi is a, a genius. All you need to do now is enforce it. How would you enforce it? Well, Mr. Kendi proposes enshrining in the US Constitution a, wait for it, Department of Anti-Racism. Mr. Story laid out the powers that such a body would have, but with a clever twist. I will set out the powers that he proposed, but I'll give it a, a bit of a, a brand change. Instead of calling it the Department of Anti-Racism, I'll rename it The Voice. The voice to Congress would be comprised of formally trained experts in racism. The voice would be responsible for pre-clearing all local, state and federal public policies to ensure they won't yield racial inequity. The voice would monitor public officials for expressions of racist ideas. The voice would be empowered with disciplinary tools to wield over and against policymakers and public officials who do not voluntarily change their racist policy and ideas. Pretty sinister stuff. Coleman Hughes, an African-American podcast host and critic of Kendi's, has written, make no mistake, if totalitarianism comes to the West, it won't be the fascism or communism of the 20th century, it will be the anti-racism of folks like Kendi. Given that people like Thomas Mayo openly support the work of Kendi and the very racist philosophy of anti-racism, it's hard to say that Mr. Story is in any way being alarmist here. Some of the Yes Vote supporters are lamenting how hard it is to change the Australian Constitution. Seriously. Guys, it's meant to be hard. In Australia, to change the Constitution, you need to win both a majority of votes nationwide and a majority in a majority of states. So you have to win the country and you have to win four out of six states. Law professor James Allen points out in an article in The Spectator this week that this isn't hard compared to two other big Anglo countries with written constitutions, the US and Canada. In the US, you have to first win a vote in the Congress, their parliament, with a two-thirds majority in the Senate and the House of Representatives. And then you need to get three quarters of the state legislatures to agree. In Canada, you have to get it through the upper house and the lower houses of parliament and then get it approved by seven out of the 10 provinces. And those seven have to add up to half the national population. It can't be seven small ones. For some special matters in Canada, like becoming a republic, ditching the British monarchy, you need the approval of all 10 provinces. Professor Allen notes that this is why nobody has bothered trying to dump the British monarchy in Canada. So it's easier in Australia. Written constitutions are meant to be hard to change, and all you need is 50% plus one in four out of six states in Australia to do it. So yes vote proponents bleating that it's too hard need to wake up to themselves. If you do want to complain about fairness, James Allen notes, check this out. For virtually all 44 other referenda we've held in Australia, the government fully funded both the yes and the no campaigns. Mr Albanese says he's not funding either side but he knows that big corporate money has poured into the yes side. Professor Allen says that right now, the inequality in financial resources between the yes and the no camp is massive.
He suspects the yes side might be already making excuses though for what many of them now think will be a loss. Don't be fooled. He says, quote, this proposal deserves to lose because it is a bad idea. Professor Allen told this show back in April that the yes vote would probably lose as people started to understand the devil in the detail. And he says he still thinks it'll fail now because it proposes to undermine the core notion of equal citizenship on which liberal democracy is founded. And because he has huge confidence in the good sense of the average Australian. In a moment, we're gonna take you to Europe this Bastille Day as France burns for a look at why conservative politics is on the rise across Europe and why traditionally conservative and centre-right political parties are not benefiting from it. It's a word of warning for Australia and a political science lesson for our Liberal Party friends. It's not to be missed. But before we go there, to the US, where cocaine was found inside the White House this week. It's pretty clear it's not the President's. My favourite comedian J.P. Sears had this take on it. But first, cocaine has been found at the White House. Officials found a bag of cocaine in the west wing of the White House on Sunday, and nobody knows whose it is. And rumour has it that world-renowned connoisseur of crack cocaine, Hunter Biden, was just in the west wing on Friday. So we repeat, nobody knows whose it is. There is speculation that if Hunter hadn't been grazing in the area, a much larger quantity likely would have been found. But cocaine at the White House? It is almost incomprehensible to consider that people who run the country as if they're high on drugs all the time might be getting high on drugs. We'll keep you posted on the latest developments of the authorities' search to make sure that the culprit is never found. That's comedian J.P. Sears on his YouTube channel, Awaken with J.P. Check it out. Since late last year, 25 aged care homes have shut down across Australia and more are set to close because they can't get staff to meet Labor's new rules that came in on July 1, which require all centres to have at least one registered nurse on premises 24-7. This was one of the recommendations of the Aged Care Royal Commission. You'd think that one fully qualified nurse on staff 24-7 across an entire centre would be possible. But it's tough for small homes in regional areas to attract and keep any staff, let alone registered nurses. The government promised some exemptions from the new rules for these smaller, more remote homes, but many operators say that they've applied weeks ago and still haven't gotten a response so may now be operating in breach of the rules and this could affect their insurance and their legal risks. Owners of one of two centres that announced that they were closing this week told the Australian uh, newspaper that a nationwide shortage of aged care staff meant that staying open was, quote, not a viable long-term solution given increases in expectations from the community and regulators. The newspaper reports aged care minister Annika Wells last month said the workforce was thousands short, but stood behind targets to have the 24-7 requirement in place for all facilities. Well, you can't have everything, Minister. If you're thousands short, you might need to ask why. Are wages too high? Are our education and training priorities messed up? 
Are the nurses' unions being appropriately managed? Are bureaucrats and government officials meddling with the market too much? I don't know what the answer is, but you need to find one and own the problem. It's on you, Annika Wells. It's a disgrace that a nation as rich as ours can't get the basics right. And looking after the elderly properly should be priority number one. A recent survey of aged care providers showed concerns that regulation is snowballing and distracting providers from delivering care to the community. Providers realise the need for strong regulation of the industry, but it needs to be the right kind of regulation. Simple rules, not endless paperwork. Something smells here. It's funny how solutions can be found when the right incentives are there. Something is wrong with the incentives or the system designs. We're putting somebody's interests ahead of the interests of our aged care residents. I wonder if it's bureaucrats or unions. Now to our feature on Europe, and we'll start in Holland. The socialist-leaning powers that be in Europe, the EU, the UN, they seem to be taking a hit lately in the political sphere. They've overstepped their mark in too many places. In Holland, officially known as the Netherlands, the man who's been the Prime Minister for 13 years, Mark Rutte, announced this week that his government is resigning after his coalition failed to agree on how to handle increasing migration. The government's now in a caretaker role until the next general election, which is likely to be in November, and Rutte has announced that he's leaving politics completely. Here's how journalist Gordon Darrick, speaking to Deutsche Welle TV from the Dutch seat of government, The Hague, explained the breakdown of the coalition government's four main parties. The differences were between the four, the four parties in the coalition. There are two parties uh, on the right, effectively, which is Mr. Rutter's own Liberal Party and the Christian Democrats. They wanted to take a much harder line in immigration, particularly they wanted to limit the numbers arriving at the border and the, num the, the number of families who could uh, be reunited. On the other hand, you had two coalition partners, two smaller parties, uh, the Liberal DCC6 party and the Christian Union, who wanted a more humane approach to asylum. They argued that the problems in the asylum system, uh, which included a huge overcrowding at the reception centre last summer were best fixed by uh, adopting a more humane approach and integrating refugees faster into Dutch society. The Netherlands is a small country. It's a little over one third the size of Tasmania and it has 18 million people. It's the second most densely populated country in Europe. So migration is a big issue for them. Despite being tiny, Holland is the world's second largest exporter of food and agricultural products by value. This is mainly because of its mild climate, fertile soil, big agricultural industry, and that excellent weather. And apart from migration, politics in the country has been divided over environmental regulation of farming. You've probably heard about the Dutch farmers' protests. Since October 2019, Dutch farmers have been protesting mainly by using tractors to block roads to fight against a government proposal to forcibly halve the country's livestock to limit agricultural pollution. It's turned into a bit of a battle between the woke city folk and the traditional farmers. Farmers now demand less government regulation, more media attention, and pro-farmer positions, they say, should get more attention, especially key issues and more policies to punish big corporations like Shell 
instead of farmers for the emissions crisis. Only about half of the Dutch people support the farmers. Like most countries in the West these days, politics is polarised and evenly split between progressives and more conservative types. The new conservative and populist farmer citizen movement achieved big wins in the provincial elections in March 2023. And following the Senate elections in May, the same group entered the Senate with 16 seats, becoming the largest party. The left-wing Green Party had 14 seats and the government coalition was left with just 10. So what's the pollution issue in Holland? Well, the soil has very high levels of nitrogen, in particular ammonia, which is released into the air by animal manure. It badly affects the quality of soil, water and air. The government launched a program in 2015 to tackle the problem and the halving of livestock allowed is the latest step. But like so many green issues, people are wary. They feel it's an attempt to control the farmers and their right to own property and livestock. Legal scholar, political journalist and commentator Ava Vladingerstok is well known to ADH TV viewers from The Mark Stein Show. She thinks the nitrogen issue is a bit of a smokescreen for EU control over Dutch law, as she explained in a recent interview with Spectator TV's Winston Marshall. I might get technical for a little bit Please here, do. but I think it's important to know. So the Dutch government is basing its nitrogen policies on European legislation, on EU legislation. And that is the Natura or the Nature 2000 um, like regulation from the EU. And that regulation is about designated areas all over Europe that are supposed to be basically natural preserves, you know, that you need to protect. And in the Netherlands, we have 162 of those. And well, anybody who's ever been to my country knows it's, you know, obviously it's very tiny and, you know, we're not really known for our, um, <laughs> our landscapes or, you know, advanced nature there or 80% of our land is actually is farmland. So, and we're very densely populated. So I'm not surprised, obviously, that we have compared to other European countries, for example, high nitrogen emissions because we're such a tiny country and everything is so packed together and we have a lot of farmland um, because we are the second largest exporter of agricultural products in the world. It's second only to the United States, which is as big as Australia. But the Netherlands is just one third the size of Tasmania. Don't mess with the indigenous knowledge. They even have vertical farming. And the average farmer needs 22 litres of water to produce a pound of tomatoes in most countries. But Dutch farmers can do it in about two litres. These are the technological world leaders in agriculture. We've been a farming nation for centuries. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the people uh, that are farmers today, you know, it's not just them, it's their, their, their ancestors, their, their grandparents, their grand, grand grandparents. So it's knowledge that has built up over centuries and they are incredibly good at it. Um, but so to come back to the so-called nitrogen crisis, these natural areas or these natural preserves that they've said can't change, that, that's the idea. So they say, for example, you know, we have a couple of sand dunes um, that now they've decided they, that the outlook on, of those can't change um, in relationship to how they looked, for example, 25 years ago. Um, and the thing is with nitrogen, what nitrogen does is that it promotes plant growth. Mm -hmm. So it could, you could potentially argue, you know, if there's a lot of nitrogen that gets 
too close to this natural area that maybe certain plants will start growing there and we don't want those plants to grow there because the area is protected mm -hmm. that's the crisis mm -hmm. okay <laughs> see what i'm saying and you know obviously it's even it remains to be seen if that is actually if the farmers actually are responsible for that is that know? only that is that the only problem with the nitrogen that is the, does it not getting into seawater getting into the water system is there not a, is is it is it not greater issue than just that no they're already really really good at all of that so the farmers you know like we just discussed they're they're incredibly efficient hard workers and already very technologically advanced mm -hmm. so you know the dutch farmers are usually have been renowned to be incredibly uh, sustainable actually you know very i would say like probably technologically top 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 of their game mm -hmm. when it comes to protecting the area because always no farmer wants their land to go bad you know especially if you otherwise you would you would miss out on well your your income your revenue and they wouldn't be producing anymore so why is this issue such a big deal and why does it motivate politicians to want to cut half of the livestock farmers can produce ava says it's a pretext for a more sinister agenda land it's very simple. So the government, like I just said, the Dutch, we're a very tiny country. Mm -hmm. We have a massive population growth due to, for, for example, immigration. Actually, at this very moment, only immigration because the natural growth of our country is completely halted. Mm. Um, so, but we we are we're packed. You know, we don't we have a housing crisis that we do have, mm -hmm. and we need new houses where people can live. But there's no there's no available land. So the government actually says this in a couple of their own um, in their own reports when they talk about farmland and when they talk about potential expropriation, they say that they need housing space, you know. So that's one of the reasons. And then obviously, if a country for eighty percent uh, exists of farmland, well, then you know the state doesn't control that. So it would obviously help them very much if they own more of <laughs> of the actual country. Hmm, sounds like a conspiracy theory, but not every conspiracy theory is false. If you make up a crisis, if you say, well, this is for the for the benefit of the world, you know, we don't want nature to go bad. It sounds morally, you know, sound. It sounds good. It sounds like you're doing a virtuous thing. So if you convince an entire population or even the entire world that there is a crisis and that well, you, we all have to do our part, you know, we all have to give up certain rights in order to solve this, then people will probably be more inclined to politically accept that and even do it than when they say, oh, well, actually, you know, we just haven't protected our borders. We're you know, letting in too many people. Uh, we don't have land. We don't know what to do here. We need it now. So fork it over, you know, and we're going to start building houses. But isn't that too drastic? Because if, let's say, what is, am I right in understanding that, um, net migration into the Netherlands is something like 400,000 a year. Is that, is that correct? What's this the year, yeah. This year it this was 400,000. Which is obviously huge. Massive, yeah. But if 80% of the land of the Netherlands is for agriculture, you don't, and so only 20% is for the existing population or the rest, you don't need to halve agriculture to, mm. for, for, to obtain land. You only need a small amount of land. Right. For the, even if it's 400,000 people, you don't need that much land. Yeah, see, you're asking all the rational questions. Yeah. So, But the fact that you're, that to me, their true intent is revealed by asking these types of rational questions and not getting, you know, a rational answer back. Because if you, if you ask these types of questions, you'd think, well, that, that doesn't make any sense. 
No, exactly. It doesn't make any sense. So the fact that it doesn't make any sense shows you that they actually have a different goal. And so the immigration part, I think, is one side of the story. Definitely, you know, it has to do, they, they have a problem with housing. Of course they do. You know, they need more land in order to house people if you don't protect your borders, if you allow migration record to be broken year after year, which has been the case in our country. Um, but there is another aspect, and that is something that I personally think is maybe even more important. It's what do you want, like, for your country? Like, how do you want your country to look? What do you want, what type of people does the state function best with? In independent, self-reliant, hardworking people like farmers or people who, you know, are much more dependent on the state, who um, basically, you know, are perfect consumers. I think probably the latter. So farmers, as you've seen during the protests as well, you know, they're they're a strong subgroup. So the immediate my immediate thought when you say that is that if and I understand that Netherlands last year had 105 billion euro uh, revenue from exporting agricultural goods, i.e. massive. Surely the government recognised that by that that is a huge amount of income for the company, uh, for the company, the, the country. Why, why would they want to jeopardise that? Well, they'll start focusing on alternative forms of, you know, protein, which is already what they're doing, For which is interesting. We have, I think, three or four insect farms now in the Netherlands, and that's something that they're promoting heavily. So I think, you know, eventually having that land, sure, agricultural, you know, revenue is big, but having the land and building houses and selling those, for example, is also a very lucrative market. And then the government owns the land. And if you own something, you can you know, generate revenue off of that for yourself for a much longer time than when it actually goes to, for example, the farmers. There are 50,000 farms in the Netherlands, not all of them big companies, some as small as 120 cows. And as Ava notes, are, they are a powerful group, as this election has shown. She's convinced this is all about land ownership and control, a familiar agenda of the left, perhaps. Property rights are at the core of liberalism. State control of property is at the core of socialism. The idea that you can have a world where nobody controls property is a myth. It either belongs to and is controlled by the people in a liberal society, or it's owned and controlled by the government in a socialist society. It's no small battle, this one. It's the battle of the ages. It definitely is a clash of worldviews. And actually, I think that with that, that actually strengthens maybe the argument of why our government wants to get rid of them, because they have a different view of what our country should look like. You know, the farmers, if you go to the Dutch countryside, you know, they might not be incredibly politically outspoken or anything, but they're at heart very conservative people. Usually most people who work with their hands and who well, create food, quite literally, you know, they're very literally down to earth people mm -hmm. who work with the knowledge that has been passed on them through tradition. Mm -hmm. And so most Dutch farmers, when you meet them, they are very sober, very, you know, they're not people who are going to spend a ton of money. Like I said, not perfect consumers. They're oftentimes Christian still, um, mm -hmm. family oriented you know, what basically the country used to look like, let's say 60 years ago. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you'll still find that in the Dutch countryside and especially it's embodied by the farmers. So I make this argument all the time, actually, that I think that the Dutch farmers are not just, they're not just farmers. They stand for a different worldview, mm -hmm. you know, of 
produce of I think actually taking care of the creation. I think most Dutch farmers do that incredibly well, even though the liars in The Hague will tell you something else. Um, very, very family what oriented. Will they tell you? Well, obviously that they're horrible peak polluters who uh, destroy our nature and need to go. And, you know, the the animal party, for example, the Greens will say that they that they mistreat their animals, which I find to be a, a, like honestly laughable, a joke. If you go to the farms and you see how I was with a farmer the other week where he, he, he was showing me his cows and he was he called them all by their names, mm. you know. He knew them all. And then the Green will say, that, or the Animal Party, well, yeah, but we'll kill them later for food. Well, yes, you know, not everybody's a vegan. Mm -hmm. Not everybody ascribes to your worldview and what you think morally is correct. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that these people are all monsters. They're the ones feeding you. That's political journalist and commentator Ava Vladingastoke speaking to Spectator TV's Winston Marshall recently. Ava also had some thoughts on the news that a trans person had been named Miss Netherlands. In case you missed it, 22-year-old Ricky Goller became Miss Netherlands on Saturday. Ricky is a transgender woman, the first to win the contest. It's part of the Miss Universe competition globally, which has allowed transgender women to take part since 2012. Ava wrote on social media that, quote, a man has been elected Miss Netherlands. I wouldn't expect anything else in our post-truth world. Other messages announced the election of the real Miss 2023, the woman who was runner-up. Kohler will go on to represent Holland at Miss Universe. She'll be the second transgender person to compete in the global title. The Indian news media was super excited about the news for some strange reason and uh, they got an interview. Here's something to smile about and cheer. Ricky Valerie Cole has made history by becoming the first transgender model to win the prestigious title of Miss Netherlands 2023. I think I should start by congratulating you. Many, many congratulations. This is a landmark win. Can I ask you what this moment feels like? Yeah, it was an amazing moment. I was in full disbelief and I couldn't believe that I just won Miss Universe Netherlands as the first trans woman ever. I wrote history and I'm so, so proud of that. My victory is based on a personal story. Um, as a little kid, I always wanted to be like the princess, the queen. I played with the dresses and the crowns. Um, I made my own story and it is a personal one, I know that. And for trans people, it's really hard to step up and uh, have a victory. Um, so for me, it feels like a bless because I know it's very hard all over the world, uh, also in the Netherlands. Um, but I feel so, so, so blessed and I cannot wait to go to Miss Universe and tell everyone my story and show them Ricky. So look, it's a nice story and who cares? Pageants are a bit silly anyway and this isn't sport. So it's not like she's using her masculine powers to beat women at their own games or anything. But I just can't help feeling that her winning may have had something to do with the publicity that this would give the pageant and a bit of virtue signaling on the part of the woke Dutch. I hope the message isn't being sent, or I'm sorry, I hope the message is being sent to young people watching though that transitioning doesn't always result in princess moments and that a lot of boys who feel that they want to be women are simply gay 
and don't need all the medical interventions because that is what the science is currently showing. In what should be a massive red flag, neon light screaming warning to the moderates in Australia's Liberal Party who keep wanting to shift left, the shift to the right in Europe is continuing and the popularity of EU exit parties is growing across the continent as people reject the centralisation of power being pushed by the urban elites. Italy and Spain have both rejected the left at recent elections, and even ultra-woke and pro-EU Germany and France are seeing seismic political shifts. A relatively new conservative party in Germany called Alternative for Deutschland, AFD, has won a district council election for the first time in what even the Guardian newspaper is calling a watershed moment in the country's politics. The AFD's performance in the national polls is on the rise too. They're now at 20%. The UK's TLDR News on YouTube did a great little explainer on the party recently. When it was founded in 2013, in the aftermath of the Eurozone crisis, it was basically a centre-right party focused on getting rid of the Euro. The AFD didn't like what they saw as Germany bailing out poorer, irresponsible European countries, especially Greece, and advocated for the return to the Deutschmark. They called themselves the AFD, because, according to one of the party's founding members, Bernd Luck, German Chancellor Angela Merkel's Eurozone policies were, quote, without alternative. Now, the AFD were determined to become that political alternative for Germany. The party has two factions, the moderates, what we might call classical liberals, those that just want to get out of the EU, reduce the size of government and have more freedom, and the nationalists or the social conservatives, those who want to cut immigration and don't mind a bit of government invention on the conservative side of policies. The nationalists usually win against the moderates, and this is what happened in 2015. The nationalists convinced the party leadership to focus more on immigration in the wake of the refugee crisis, when Germany took in an astonishing one and a half million asylum seekers, with about two thirds of those coming in 2015. While Germans were in general supportive of Merkel's policies, a significant faction of the German electorate was wary of the size of the refugee influx. The AFD's appeal to anti-immigrant and anti-establishment voters helped them perform well in the 2016 state elections. They did well in the 2017 national elections too, then they slid back a bit in 2021 because of Covid, but they're expected to do much better in the next round because many Germans are sick of the left-wing governing coalition, made up of Chancellor Olaf Scholz's Social Democrats, or SPD, the Greens, and a third minor party. In the 18 months since the last election, the AFD have surged, going from 10% in the polls last year to 19% today, on par with the SPD. That's the SPD, the ruling Social Democrats, the Chancellor of Germany, Olaf Scholz's party, so the AFD, this little conservative party like One Nation, are now as big as Germany's equivalent of the Labour Party. Australia's Liberal Party beware. Imagine if One Nation or the UAP got this big. And imagine what the National Party of Australia might be able to achieve if it went harder as a separate entity, abandoning the centre left leaning Liberals. Farmers and City Conservatives United. Wow. That'd be a political force to reckon with in Australia, I think. 
We may need to see Labor and the Greens wreck the place a bit more before we get as angry as mainstream Germans are with their left-wing coalition government, however. The German ruling coalition parties do not get on. There is always an ideological tension here. The Greens, for example, want to borrow to fund their ambitious climate policies. But the FDP really don't like debt. But as their poll numbers have declined, the coalition members have stopped compromising with one another. Instead, the parties force through policies that play well with their base, even if they're not generally popular. The FDP, for example, forced a last-minute change to the EU's new emissions rules, and the Green Party have forced through the closure of Germany's remaining nuclear power plants, despite the fact that most Germans oppose it and are currently trying to implement a controversial policy that would ban new gas and oil boilers in favour of heat pumps. Good luck with that. 75% of Germans oppose that policy according to recent polls. Now there's a thing going on in Australia amongst the Liberal Party power brokers. They believe they don't have to do anything. They believe that Labor will eventually start to lose and that, you know, the Liberals will just cruise in and win by default. This is particularly the case in Queensland, which has an election next year and where most of the opposition are sitting on their hands and too scared to do anything or say boo about anything. And Peter Dutton is trying to wake up the Federal Party, and good on him. But many within the ranks think the road to victory is a more moderate position than Dutton wants to take. They're wrong. Here's why. The Christian Democrats are the German equivalent of our Liberal Party, the biggest mainstream, traditionally centre-right party in Germany. And things are not going so well for them either. I mean, I would have expected all that frustration with the ruling socialist parties would benefit the Christian Democrats. I sure hope TLDR News can explain why it hasn't. Now, you might expect this disappointment to benefit the Christian Democrats, given they're the official opposition. But while the CDU have seen some improvements in the polls, they've supported the coalition's key policies, including most of the Ukraine and climate policies, which has allowed the AFD to present themselves as the real opposition. The AFD are the only party that really opposes either the nuclear shutdown or the new heat pump law. And while the leadership isn't actively pro-Russia, the AFD are clearly the most Russia-sympathetic party in German politics. Their anti-establishment posture as the real opposition is why the AFD's voter base is politically diverse. While they're most popular with older men and disaffected CDU voters, polling suggests that the AFD are also drawing votes from all three parties in the governing coalition. That's the UK's TLDR News on YouTube with a lesson and a message to moderate Aussie Liberals. Shut up and listen to Mr Dutton. And a lesson to the Nationals and One Nation. Maybe a new kind of conservative coalition is needed in this country. Which leaves us with France in our review of the uh, troubles in Europe caused by decades of a particular brand of social policies. The riots continue. Let's start at the beginning. Here's how the Daily Mail newspaper's Chris Pleasance explains it. The unrest began on June the 27th in Nanterre, a banlieue or suburb of Paris on the western outskirts of the city. Nahel, a 17-year-old delivery driver, was spotted at the wheel of a yellow Mercedes with Polish number plates in a bus lane shortly before 8am. Two officers on motorbikes said he was driving fast with two other boys in the car, so they decided to stop him at a red light. 
Nahel fled, but police caught up to him in traffic, which is when they drew their guns and approached the car on foot. What happened next is disputed, but the boy was shot and killed by the police. Some say he drove the car at police, others say his foot slipped and the car lurched forward. Daily Wire commentator Andrew Claven says the cops have had enough and he read out a statement from one of the country's police unions, which is full on to say the least. Take a listen to this. He's too young to drive. The police stop him. He's driving a stolen car with uh, Polish plates. And that's important because apparently this is German, stolen German cars with Polish plates are used by drug dealers. And this kid had a lot of arrests. He had no convictions, but he was known, known to be part of the drug world. And the cops, uh, one of the cops positioned himself on the hood of his car and the kids stopped, stepped on the gas to get away. And the cop fired and he killed him. He says he wanted to wound him, but the cops have had it with these people. The country's top two police unions, the Alliance uh, Police Nationale, and you have to forgive my terrible French accent, uh, and UNSA police said in a statement, today police officers are at the front line because we are at war. Faced with these savage hordes, it's, it's these savage hordes, he's calling them. It's no longer enough to call for calm. Calm must be imposed. Now is not the time for industrial action, but for fighting against these vermin. So that's, you know, that's civil war talk. This is, they think they are really in for a long fight. Whoa, that was the police union, an official statement. So the police have really had enough in France. In any case, just like George Floyd in the US, the killing sparked riots, bringing simmering tensions to the surface. Back to the Daily Mail. Thousands of people have been arrested. Hundreds of officers have been hurt. Cars, buses, trams, and buildings have been torched and armed men have taken over the streets. In perhaps the most shocking incident, rioters drove a car into the home of a small town mayor in the middle of the night, leaving his wife with a broken leg and injuring his children. President Macron has been forced to deploy France's GIGN special forces to try and bring the situation under control and has so far resisted calls to declare a state of emergency. The Daily Mail reports that President Macron initially denounced the killing of Nahel, but after a backlash from police, he now blames social media and video games. But it seems the real underlying issue is decades of too fast immigration without any plans for cultural, social and economic integration. Chris Pleasance says to understand why the riots are happening, we have to look at where they are happening. Which is inside impoverished suburban neighborhoods known as banlieues. These areas are notorious hotspots of unrest where multiple generations of poor migrants end up being effectively cut off from the rest of society. They are crammed into low quality housing, devoid of access to good schools, and often discriminated against in the job market, meaning the prospects of children born in these areas are bleak. That attracts crime, which in turn draws the attention of police, whose sometimes heavy-handed tactics lead to allegations of systemic racism. The Daily Mail says gangs and gang violence has exploded as young men in these deprived neighborhoods fight to survive on the mean streets. And it's not just Paris. Marseille and Lyon and other major cities are also affected. You want to screw up your country? Do rapid immigration. 
and do it without expecting any adherence to the dominant culture of your country. Don't require any assimilation commitments. Give migrants a sense of entitlement even and call anyone who suggests immigration has to be handled very gradually and sensitively a racist. British commentator Esther Krakow told Sky News Australia that fr the French don't have any conversation about assimilation. Look, we, we have many conversations about multiculturalism here in the UK, particularly when we talk about, you know, how much do we tolerate if it's going to go against our own values. But really, uh, the French could take a leaf out of, of the Brits' books because at the very least, we have a conversation about it. We have a conversation about what it means to be British and what values you have to sign up to to be here. And then, you know, what people are not compatible with those values. We, As difficult as it is, we do have those conversations. In France, it do just does not happen. But we really don't talk about the idea of social integration and what it actually means to have a sense of national identity and national pride. With the US, for instance, race is something that's always part of the national conversation. You know, you, you can never get away from it. They're always talking about race and racial discrimination and, you know, uh, uh, disparities and statistics and figures. In France, actually, it's actually legal to collect uh, data with regards to anyone's ethnicity um, or race. Um, but there's also the question of how um, ethnic minorities are socially integrated into France. So, for instance, in France, you see a lot of ghettos uh, in uh, scattered around many urban areas and um, many suburbs and they tend to be you know areas that are concentrated with uh, ethnic minority communities that tend to be lower down on the socioeconomic scale in the uk that integration model doesn't actually exist um so you can be in, an, in a really posh area like kensington for instance and you know run across a, a block of, of council flats and the whole ideology and the the, the, the method to the madness there is you have to have different groups of people regardless of where they are socioeconomically integrated in a community and in France, that attitude just doesn't exist. I mean, I lived, I lived in France, and I can testify to this, you know, firsthand. And the reality is, the French have really been ignoring uh, the, the the boiling pot that is uh, racial tensions for too long. Some warnings that we should heed on our approach to immigration and integration, as we open Australia up to a four percent population increase by immigration in the next couple of years, perhaps. And as in Holland and Germany and Spain and Italy, in France, the conservative politicians on the right have had enough. An impassioned speech in the French parliament was delivered by conservative MP Marine Le Pen to a standing ovation. I apologize to our non-French speaking podcast listeners, but this comes with subtitles for our TV audience. If you're listening and don't speak French, just uh, skip forward about 30 seconds. Je voudrais vous poser la question que se posent tous les Français. Qu'avez-vous fait de la France Vous qui menez la même politique que vos prédécesseurs depuis 40 ans. Qu'avez-vous fait de notre pays en y implantant des zones d'un endroit que vous avez laissé se communautariser, se criminaliser Qu'avez-vous fait lorsque vous avez laissé prospérer l'ignorance de notre culture, l'hostilité à l'égard de l'autorité légale de l'État, l'illégitimité de nos lois et la haine de notre peuple Qu'avez-vous fait pour transformer notre pays parmi les plus courtois, les plus élégants et les plus doux de la terre pour en faire un enfer où se consume avec les bâtiments publics qui brûlent toutefois en l'avenir So Marine Le Pen there is asking President Macron what have you done with France carrying on the same policies of the past 40 years with regard to immigration and migrant housing permitting ignorance of the culture hostility towards the state our laws and the hatred of the people, she says. She says Macron has transformed a country that was the most courteous, softest, and elegant on earth to make it a hell. Il faut d'abord et 
avant tout stopper l'immigration anarchique. Or, vous êtes en train d'aggraver le problème du communautarisme, voire du séparatisme, et de le disséminer dans le moindre village. Il faut ensuite reprendre la main dans tous les quartiers de France, rétablir l'autorité des parents, refaire de l'école le creuset de la République, rendre à la justice sa fermeté, sans laquelle elle restera impuissante à protéger les Français. Marine Le Pen telling the National Assembly that the country must regain control of its districts, return power to the family, rebuild the schools, and give justice its firmness. Marine Le Pen is the parliamentary leader of the Conservative National Rally Party in France. Indian Prime Minister Modi visited Paris this week. He was the guest of honour for Bastille Day, the 14th of July. India is likely to buy 26 Rafale jets from France, adding to 36 that they bought back in 2016. Three new submarines are also on India's shopping list this visit. And that's all we've got time for this week. That's it for The Other Side Australia for this weekend, starting Bastille Day, the 14th of July, for our episode 14 of this series on the ADH TV network. And don't forget to tell your friends about the show. The only way that we can grow, we've really got to support the independent media. Uh, and the best way to do that is just to tell people about us. Make sure that you and that your friends download the ADH TV app. It's absolutely free. You download it on your smartphone, your smart device, and also on your smart TV. Then you'll get that nice interface and you can connect and look through all our shows and check out Mark Stein and Alan Jones, uh, Fred Paul, uh, Alexandra Marshall. Uh, we've got Spectator TV, uh, lots and lots of stuff there for you. Uh, Nick Cater, um, some great shows. So do join us on ADH TV every night of the week for our excellent content. Um, and also, uh, you can catch The Other Side Australia on all podcast platforms and a lot of ADH content on podcast platforms, the regular podcast platforms if you prefer to listen as well. And you can you know, check out the show while you are doing your housework or doing your exercise. So please stay with us, please support us. Uh, thank you very much. And don't forget, do write to us, do engage with us online. We'd love to get your comments and we will, we promise, try to respond uh, to as many of them as we possibly can. We'll catch you Tuesday night for The Other Side Interviews, our other show, uh, which is a long-form interview show every Tuesday night. Uh, it drops on ADH TV around 6 p.m. and then online, uh, on demand for you after that on ADH as well. And you can also watch all of our back episodes and all of our old interviews and everything uh, right on the ADH TV platform. We'll catch you next week. Have a great week.